But now it's time for Fry's English Delight, and I'd like to tell you what it's about, but it's confidential. Firstly attractive, isn't it? The idea that you shouldn't be hearing what I shouldn't be about to say. The use of language to conceal even as it reveals. And revealing the concealed is what we'll be doing today with all kinds of English that only works if you're in the know. Like Lou here. Yo, Manito, what say we squash some bugs at the club on the tray? Sounds nasty. It is. This is a pleasant invitation, though. Lay your lappers on the striller's bow now. Translations later. But both those secret languages we'll hear were used strategically. Vigi! Vigi! Es como leles. Lang. Whereas that one surfaced more playfully. <laughs> everyone has one of these. Bimmer, blapper, blitter. But everyone seems to have a different secret word for it. Funny ding dong, kadumpfer. Oh, yes. A word about your funny ding dong. No doubt you have it near at hand, but please do not manipulate it in the next 27 minutes or so. We'll be revealing all. Eventually. And that's one of the features of secret language we'll be highlighting. The sometimes tense game of linguistic hide-and-seek involved. The pleasure of breaking the code as well as the risks involved with keeping it safe. I'm joined in the studio by a man who's well-versed in the language of secrets of all kinds, former MI6 officer, undercover agent and espionage historian, Harry Ferguson. Harry, I suppose the, uh, the first question is, are secret languages as important to spies as we fondly imagine? Yes. Codes have always been part of the business of espionage. Mm -hmm. And indeed, the earliest reference to um, using that secret language is in the Kama Sutra. <laughs> 500 BC, and it was quite interesting. In India, it was women who, oddly enough, were the secret agents because they were felt to be the most successful at not being spotted and at getting in and getting secrets. You know, one's picture of a spy is secret languages in the field, using lemon juice for invisible ink and uh, one-time pads and dead letter boxes and all this sort of thing. And is, is that part of the training? It's odd how, if you're in the espionage game long enough, things go round full circle. And certainly um, when I joined, which was way back in the 1980s, um, it was John le Carre, Moscow Rule sort of thing, yeah. dead letter boxes, and uh, one, as you say, one-time pads written on flash paper, which could be detonated in a second or dissolved in water that you would then drink so the enemy would never know you had it you know, while you were being sick. Um, <laughs> and then it all became terribly electronic. The agent would write all his intelligence up on a tiny little box which he carried in his pocket. You would be half a mile away, and you'd have a little box in your pocket, it would pick up the the intelligence that he'd written, and the two of you would never even meet. But now, uh, of course, we've found that uh, so much electronic data can be captured. So that's now all changed, and our enemies are now using couriers, and they're back to coded messages, and in certain circumstances, we're back to the old Moscow rules-style procedures. Secret language is about not being understood by the wrong people, but also about building camaraderie between the right people even if they're on the wrong side of the law. 
as retired Sergeant Lou Savelli found when working for the New York Police Department. Pretty much every gang has its own specific language. You know, one example, one gang that had a lot of codes and secret languages was the Latin Kings. One day, we're, we're listening to a, um, a body wire in an undercover, and one of them says, uh, Yo, Manito, what say we squash some bugs at the club on the tray? To translate that, what one was saying to the other was, hey, my Latin king brother, Manito's Latin king brother, let's go kill some nietas at the bar on 3rd Avenue. So nietas are called bugs or insects. A lot of gangs will call their enemies insects or bugs. And they would say on the tray on 3rd, 3rd Avenue, number 3. Well, sure enough, we end up grabbing these guys heading towards 3rd Avenue, and we got a gun off them that they're going to use in killing some of the rivals. Once you know what it means, it's easy to trace the etymology. Or should that be entomology? Bugs, you see, I was making... Oh, never mind. The endearment manito and the word tray nod to the gang's Hispanic linguistic roots. Latin kings conveys a classical image of authority. But there are humbler gang coinages. The, uh, the rivalry between gangs, such as the Crips and Bloods, is a great example of how languages develop Something that started in jails and prisons. The Bloods would say something like, eat his food. It's, that's uh, disrespect in a mess hall to walk up to somebody and take their food. You have to fight. And the Bloods would use that as an excuse in order to kill that person. So the Crips, in turn, they would say, drink his milk. And if they wanted to kill somebody, they would say, that guy is milk. That means he's marked for death. It's stuff that they only understand. It's going to basically cause them to be closer and operate almost like a family. Digio Tondrit, De Flicker, Funny Ding Dong, Kadumpfa, Mando, Potiator, Plinky. Bill Lucas is Professor of Learning at the University of Winchester and part of the English Project. Splonker, Squirter, Tinky. Bill and his colleagues started to document family coinages, a baffling vernacular they dubbed kitchen table lingo. Tinky Toot, Twanger, Whiz Whiz, and Woodget. Or should that be living room lingo? Your funny ding-dong is about to be explained. It was the remote control for the television that gave us the most alternative words. And I guess the uh, remote control is ubiquitous, that's one reason. And I guess people spend a lot of time watching television, that's another reason. And I guess it's very boring, isn't it, just to say, pass the remote control. So... Maybe sometimes, too, the secret language is a result of boredom uh, and you just want to come up with something that's new and that makes you, uh, reminds yourself why you're alive. And so often necessity is the mother of invention. A fundamental reason is to describe something which we find our current stock of words not quite up to the task for. So, for example, um, I liked the word blangy. Blangy? Hmm. Is it animal, vegetable or mineral? Off colour, but without any symptoms. Oh, of course. Next? Bloiky. Hmm. Could it be a kind of male raucous behaviour? A cross between blokey and oik, perhaps? Bloiky describes that particular feeling you have in your stomach when you know you've just eaten slightly too much. No, I don't think I've ever felt that. This body is a temple. Though I dare say I may have, on occasion, looked a touch impufflicated. 
that early morning bleary-eyed look. And I can see why many an impufflicated parent might need to coin new terms adequately to express the levels of annoyance arising from dealing with grooglums and a floordrobe. Grooglums are those little bits that get left in the sink when you've done the washing up. And my absolute favourite was floordrobe. That place that any parent knows is where his or her daughter or son files their clothes. Of course, failing to crack the code doesn't matter too much when you're dealing with grooglums and floordrobes. But what if you're strolling through downtown Manhattan and you come face to face with a man with a puppy? One day I was buying crack cocaine and uh, I hear the one guy say to the other guy, you have the puppy, man. Here's former NYPD Sergeant Lou Savelli going undercover to do a drug deal with a Jamaican gang or posse. The other guy just touches the front of his waistband, which I know puppy means gun, and he touches the gun. And he goes, me puppy's right here if this blood clot is a constable. I'm talking about me. If I was a constable, which is what they call police officers in Jamaica, I knew at that point that um, this guy's on with a gun. i got to be careful how I carry myself and the fact that I understood it. Help me stay safe that day. In an undercover situation, there is a tricky balance to be struck between speaking the secret code to blend in and not giving yourself away. I train police officers all around the world, and one of the things I train them to do when working undercover is try to be as much as themselves as possible, because during a stressful situation, you're going to revert back to your instincts. But you also have to play a role, and you have to act. The only difference about this acting is if you make a mistake, you're dead. Harry Ferguson. That's pretty much the front line of one kind of uh, undercover work. And I know you uh, left MI6 for NIS, which is the uh, the National Investigation Service, where you went undercover. I think was it was that utterly different from anything you'd done before, or did you sort of draw on the same suite of uh, skills? Uh, it's much more hands-on than being a spy. I mean, uh, just listening to that clip there. I mean, it's absolutely right that um, you do have to be yourself while maintaining this this clothing, you know, this business analyst, this arms expert, mm. whatever it is at the time. But the difference between law enforcement work and espionage is that espionage is done at one remove. For instance, I couldn't walk tomorrow into uh, an Iranian nuclear facility to get information on their, on their arms programme. What I could do is recruit an Iranian scientist. The point about that being that when the operation goes wrong, the person who ends up standing against a wall is my agent. Now, when you join as a young officer, that sounds great. What you don't realise is that in recruiting someone and getting to know them so well, and befriending them, that a bond develops between you so that when you put them in danger, if you lose them, it's as bad as if you'd lost a friend and you'd put that friend in danger. And that aspect breaks more officers than any number of bullets or bombs or anything like that because that guilt is something you can never get rid of. That's very interesting, This the nature of the relationship with uh, someone you recruit. Do you, are you honest with them? Um, it used to be referred to as the dance of the seven veils. <laughs> there are supposedly seven stages to recruiting your agent, such as acquaintance, friendship, the trust stage. Um, so when you say, are you honest with them? Yeah. Not initially. Right, it's a stage. But gradually yeah, you see. reveal the full picture. But, again, coming back to that point that, that was made earlier in that clip, underneath it all, you're establishing this relationship and you want them to trust you. So you've got to be frank with them about the fact that you value them, and what they're going to do you think is important. Because although we talk about the language, so much of human communication is not in what's said, 
but how it's said, the circumstances, what you wear, the tone of your voice. We study that even more in many ways than we study the language. So it's different kinds of language, body language and uh, gesture and yeah. things like that. Most of the modes of speech we have been talking about are not languages in a strict sense because you can't use them for everything. You can't give a maths lecture in gang slang or run a board meeting in kitchen table lingo. But for me, a good test is the good book. In the beginning, Gloria created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was an antiform and void. And Munge was upon the eek of the deep. This translation is the work of Tim Greening Jackson, otherwise known as Systematic Debauchery of the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, a bunch of queer radicals and gender revolutionaries. And the fairy of Gloria trolled upon the eek of the aquas, and Gloria cackled, let there be sparkle. And there was sparkle. Polari is the clandestine talk used by gay men and some lesbians, particularly in the first two-thirds of the 20th century. Ah, men. It's a mongrel language, gleaning terms from forms of slang associated with marginalised or stigmatised groups, stretching right back to the thieves' cant of Elizabethan England. The 18th century added words from mollyhouse culture. Mollies being men who had sex with other men. The 19th century added some Pagliari, a language derived from Italian, and it also has words from Yiddish, drug culture, and American Air Force slang. It was widely used in the music halls and the entertainment industry, and became particularly associated with gay men, who had obvious need of a way to keep their illegal lifestyles from prying ears. Paul Baker is Professor of English Language at Lancaster University and a devotee of Polari. Lots of words for bodies. So you've got um, ogles or eyes, um, ogle fakes or glasses. Raya is hair, and that's an interesting one because it comes from something called backslang. So it's actually the words hair spelt backwards. Another word from backslang was ecaf, which is the word face. Often abbreviated to eek. Remember Gloria on the eek of the aquas. Legs were lollies, um, your feet were plates, and this is another way that Polari words were derived. Um, they came from Cockney rhyming slang, so feet, plates, plates of meat rhymes with feet, so that's where plates comes from. Although plates also has a second, much ruder meaning, which I won't say. <laughs> Polari is not just practical, but political, a language of dissent. They're using it not just to sort of speak in secret, but to somehow go against the values of, of mainstream society. And that may be in a sort of quite negative, mocking way. And that's quite common in Polari, I think, when they're quite sarcastic, say, um, of what they call NAFs, who are straight people, or the police. Um, and they had quite a lot of mocking and negative words for the police, um, terms like Lily Law, or Betty Bracelets, um, or Hilda Handcuffs. So these words are kind of going to feminise the police and make them seem uh, not very important. An important component of the appeal of secret languages being the restoration of power to the powerless. Of course, the public faces of Polari, or I should say voices, were... Well, I should let them introduce themselves, really. Hello, anybody there? Oh, hello, I'm Judy, and this is my friend Sandy. Oh, hello. Hugh Paddock and Kenneth Williams on the series Round the Horn, a hit on the home service of the BBC and still popular and available today. There, look, Mr Owen. Look, vow to that great butch Lou Coddy. Yeah. <laughs> 
Now, rip all your muscles, Jill. Oh. Eh? Rip all your muscles. Oh. He does it to music, Mr. Oh. If you knew the language, they were talking about some quite explicit things on, on their radio programme and the comedy sketches. And so there are cases where, in particular, Kenneth Williams is using Polari in a way which really kind of goes beyond what the scripts actually say, but what's written down on the page. I don't think so. The audience may have seen a secondary meaning. Them? Secondary meaning? What? They don't even see the first meaning. Take this example, which plays on the multiple layered meanings of the word dish. Dish as in crockery, dish as in attractive person, and dish, uh, well, I'll explain after this. Well, do the best you can. Here's the dishcloth. We can wash up in here. All the dishes are dirty. Speak for yourself. <laughs> Kenneth Williams improvised that line, speak for yourself, earning an extra laugh from those who knew that in Polari, dish can also mean anus. A definition which would have escaped most of the audience, and certainly the BBC, and even the show's writer. I interviewed Barry Tucker about this shortly before he died, um, and told him about some of these cases, and, and he was quite surprised and shocked at the ways that Kenneth Williams was using the language. Jewel, get on the piano. Shall I? Get on the piano, or allow your lappers on the striller's bone. It means play something nice on the piano for us. Take it away, Ginger. Here we Ginger Rogers singing in Pig Latin, which confusingly has nothing to do with real Latin. It's one of a vast family of secret languages created by muddling up the order of words or inserting extra syllables. In this instance, for words which begin with a consonant, the initial consonant is moved to the end of the word and A is added. For words which begin with vowels, one simply adds way or wa to the end of the word. Got it? So, we're in the money becomes earway in hay the anime. Children love this kind of gobbledygook. Young friends, Ruby and Mazzy, actually invented their very own secret lingo. Morganish. Um, okay, okay uh, well, how are you? In Morganish is escomalele. Um, then you would reply, like, lank means hot, um, nini means tired, hello is vg, uh, but, like, if you want to abbreviate that, it's just vg, as in, like, hi, hi and hello. Yeah. Um, I use it at home sometimes on email when my brother's, like, watching over me, uh, sometimes on the phone. The girls feel this way of communicating is particularly useful for younger people. Adults don't really have anything really, really secret that their friends shouldn't know about. With younger people, when they're at school, they're surrounded by friends and it's quite hard if you want to have, like, a private conversation. You have a lot of secrets, who do love, or, you know, <laughs> things like that. And so it's nice, to, it's nice to have your own language and no-one knows what you're saying. If you said to someone, oh, we need to have a private conversation, yeah. like your um, friends, your other friends, they instantly know that, 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 that something's going on and they might even get quite upset. But when you just say something really quickly in another language, they don't really get bothered about it because they don't know that maybe it's something that they, they would like to know. Michael and Edward Sanson here are just over two years old. They can speak English, but together they like to use this shared babble. 
Cryptophasia is the technical term, or idioglossia, one's own language. Some twins form more distinct words, but in all cases, it's important to say that this isn't a deliberately secret language. Twin babies aren't dreaming it up to hide their plans for world domination from their parents. Instead, it could more specifically be described as a private language, something that springs from a very close relationship. And apparently, it isn't as rare as you might think. About 40% of twins develop a private language, are mostly at the toddler stage, and they mostly grow out of it by the time they go to primary school. Audrey Sandbank is a family psychotherapist who specialises in twins. It's not a completely different language. It's what they're hearing, but young children often find um, letters difficult to say. For instance, one pair of English twins were trying to say, uh, Lizzie goes to school, and what they actually said was, uh, did Odo beer? <laughs> that sounds nothing like it. But you can understand how Lizzie could become Diddy because L is difficult. And then Odo, they got the O sound. Beer, I have no idea. It sounds perfectly ridiculous and you can't think where it comes from. But it's something they've developed between them. As they get older, some twins deliberately hang on to bits of their twin speak in order to have a way to communicate secretly, transforming a private language into a secret one. But you don't need to be a twin or an undercover cop or a schoolgirl to come into contact with a secret language. You just need to turn on the telly. Pass the funny ding-dong, won't you? I think one of the enduring popularities of medical dramas, particularly like ER and even Casualty, is that you like to be bamboozled with a bit of gobbledygook. Phil Hammond, doctor, comedian and a man who argues for medical transparency in the pages of Private Eye. I think language does give you power as a doctor. And there is, there is almost a placebo effect to that secret language. If your diagnosis is a fancy one with a Latin term, it gives you more purchase and power than if it's explained to you in plain English. If I tell you as a patient that you've got a sore shoulder, that means nothing. But if I tell you you've got supracapsular bursitis, then that gets you out of sex work and the washing up for a fortnight. Which isn't to say that that power can't sometimes be abused by medical personnel. While you might like to be described on your notes with characteristic medical humour as GLL or great-looking lallies, you might be less keen to see grollies, which apparently means guardian reader of low intelligence in an ethnic skirt, I ask you. But secret medical terminology isn't all black humour and snide swipes. I think in the old days of medical paternalism, we used to use language to protect patients from information we thought that they didn't want to hear. We wouldn't always tell patients if they had cancer. We wouldn't often tell them if they had things like multiple sclerosis or dementia, because we felt that, that then the options were limited and it would do more harm than good. But that was a very paternalistic thing to do. And we used to use a lot of euphemisms. I had a consultant who used to use cricketing analogies, so he'd tell patients they were batting on a bit of a sticky wicket, or it was time for a short walk back to the pavilion. I'd much prefer uh, openness and transparency in medicine, but I, I think before you explain and demystify, you've got to figure out whether patients want that, and some patients perhaps still do not want the absolute unvarnished truth. They perhaps absolutely want a bit of placebo and a bit of secrecy and a bit of language they don't quite understand. But as former NYPD Sergeant Lou Savelli knows all too well, clarity is sometimes the best policy. Quite often we come across people who are not in gangs that uh, 
use gang terminology. They think it's it's cool to talk that way or, or it's fun. In Brooklyn, you know, I was in the gang unit. There was a bunch of you know young kids, teenagers playing basketball, and one kid gets a uh, a basket. It was a good shot, and his friend says, "Nice basket, blood." And then, unbeknownst to him, there were a couple of gang members nearby in the schoolyard, and they overheard that, and they happened to be Crips, rivals of the Bloods. So they took that as these guys are Bloods playing basketball in our territory, and then next thing you know, one of them pulls out a gun and starts firing shots at the basketball players. And the kid who made the basket, who was called Blood, um, was then shot in the head and he died as a result. Yeah, well, that's, there's nothing nice about that at all, is there? I suppose the misuse of language, or not really necessarily misuse, misunderstanding, uh, can be devastating. Is there always a little, a little man in the back of your brain who's just controlling, just, just sort of putting down a membrane between your mouth and your thoughts just to stop you saying the wrong thing? Yes. Presumably when you were actually in MI6 as an operative, you, w- you weren't able to say in dinner parties what you did. I tried not to. Yeah. Depending on what wine was on offer <laughs> and how much. So, I mean, you had, in that sense, to live a lie. And, and, and was that difficult or did you enjoy it or perhaps enjoy it too much? Is it a corrosive thing? You're, you're absolutely bang on there. I did enjoy it too much. Um, being a, an officer in the Secret Service... It's um, having access to a world that everybody would like to know about. And often, you know, there are news stories appear on television and you know background there that you would love to tell other people, but you mustn't. And, you know, when you go to work, you go to work at a secret building where, in my day, even the memo pads by the phone were stamped secret. Um, (laughs) It's terribly, terribly exciting. But um, at the same time, you lose touch with the real world. And and in running agents, particularly where issues such as terrorism are on the line, um, things do get done. People do get hurt. Um, and that can be hard to live with um, because you can't share that burden. Not because you don't trust your family, but because you never know when you're bugged or somebody mm-hmm. might overhear that you didn't realise was there. You can't take that sort of risk with secret information. Um, David Shaler, <clears throat> who's not somebody I approve of, but who was an MI5 officer who went rogue, once said something along the lines of secrecy is a poison. And I know exactly you know, what he means by that, that it can be just too, too good and it can do something to your character because you become part of this, this secret world. At the most serious end of the language business, codes are precious, sensitive, volatile even. All the same, as Mazzy, or was it Ruby, wisely said... It's nice to have your own language. For friends, lovers, community or family members, do you want to know a secret? Is for the most part a delightful invitation. Still, there is, hiding in plain sight, another new widely used language which often aspires to transparency but whose meaning is utterly opaque. Its guilty secret is, there is no meaning in it at all. I think, as with elsewhere in life, the new secret language in medicine is is probably something that's gleaned from management consultants. I remember going to a meeting with some orthopaedic surgeons who wanted to understand why they couldn't operate in in some new treatment centres that had been set up by the private sector. And the politician who was explaining it to them um, said, no, you can't go there because of additionality and contestability. And we get completely bamboozled. We've had um, GP Pathfinder Consortia. We've now moved into Vanguard Locality Purchasing. 
I haven't the faintest idea what any of this stuff means. In other words, it's Ollux Bay. Fry's English Delight was produced by Kate Taylor. It was a testbed production for BBC Radio 4. And for more of that conversation with intelligence man Harry Ferguson, you can head to the Radio 4 website. Next week, bilingualism.